Good evening. My name is Ronnie Garcia, pastor here at Trinity Church. Thank you so much for clicking in. Tonight is the night in which we remember the moment in history when Jesus of Nazareth hung on a cross. Now, presumably he was innocent. And this is a curious thing, right? What did Jesus of Nazareth, one of the most famously compassionate figures of all history, do to earn capital punishment at the hands of the Roman Empire? That's an important question, but that's not actually the question I'm going to set out to answer tonight. That question, although it's relevant to all people everywhere, it also feels, or at least it has the appearance of being a religious question. But tonight, I'm interested in an existential, a more human question. And here's the question that I have for us tonight. Am I loved? That's not a religious question, right? That is a human question. You don't have to be religious to ask that question. And whether you are religious or not, it's a haunting question. It's a question that makes us feel vulnerable. Why? Because how can we know the answer with certainty? I read a story about Madonna who was giving a concert in her hometown in Madison Square uh, Garden there in New York, and there were thousands of fans going crazy, but on that particular night, she was a little bit off. You know, she, she was off with her choreography. She missed a lyric here or there. Uh, she wasn't sharp. So at one point, she stops the band, right? She stops the whole concert. She walks up towards the crowd, almost as if in defeat, and she sits down right there on the edge of the stage, and she looks at the crowd and says, guys, I'm just not feeling it tonight. This is my hometown. You guys love me, right? You guys love me, right? I love that Madonna asked that question. I mean, this is Madonna, a a cultural icon, and, and she's asking the question, am I loved? Perhaps you saw the uh, Amy Winehouse documentary. It came out a few years ago now. But if you don't know Amy Winehouse, she was an English singer with infinite talent who struggled her entire life with uh, um, substance abuse. And she ultimately died of alcohol poisoning at the age of 27. So in this documentary, uh, there's this moment at the beginning where she makes a confession And this confession kind of sets the stage for the rest of how to understand the rest of the documentary. So in this moment of vulnerability, Amy looks at the camera and she says, my dad was there, but he wasn't there. And that's all I really needed. See, Amy had no security in the love of her father. And so the rest of the documentary shows Amy moving from album to album Relationship to relationship, addiction to addiction, in an attempt to ease the pain and answer the question, am I loved? In many ways, that question was in the driver's seat of her life. It shaped her her purpose, her sense of purpose and decisions. Now, you and I, 
might not have the exact same story as Amy Winehouse, or we might not be as bold as Madonna to articulate it so concretely, but nevertheless, we have that question, and we are all looking for answers. And so we will use our work, our relationships, our gifts, and even our religiosity to find an answer. We'll, we'll slide that question out there to see if anything comes back. See, somewhere in your life, you are asking that question. Somewhere, that question, am I loved, is driving you. It's shaping your decisions. And for many of us, the answer to that question is a little bit uncertain. And we will scour the earth, looking to every job, every relationship, every prize, until we find a yes to that question. We will take that question to our hobbies. We'll take it to our bank accounts until we find an answer. And this is where the message of Christianity becomes incredibly relevant. I don't know if you believe in Christianity or not, but I want to help you understand why at least you should. <laughs> uh, the yes that your heart needs cannot be found on earth. See, you need a bigger yes, right? A million screaming fans, a million dollars, perfect parents, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, the perfect body, none of those things will give you a yes to the question, am I loved? And certainly not one that's big enough that will satisfy your search. The story of Christianity is a bigger yes. Now, you know, maybe you don't, but Christianity is a story. It's not just a set of rules. And this precise question has been troubling humanity since the world went wrong. Am I loved? To that question, God himself, Christianity teaches, God himself comes down so that he can be heard, so that he can be seen. And he says, yes. See, Jesus is God's yes to the world. And for this reason, the imagery of Jesus hanging on a cross for Christians has a very different connotation. A bloody Savior hanging on a cross is not intended to provoke guilt or manipulate anyone into obedience. On the contrary, it's meant to communicate to you that you are worth it, that you are loved. So when you ask, am I loved, Christianity says Yes. And on Good Friday, this is when we Christians just rehearse this love. The love that God offers cost him something, and that's why we can feel secure in God's love. So the answer to our question is yes, but it's not that easy, right? I mean, we actually struggle to believe this, no matter how many times we hear it. Why? Why do we struggle? Our idea of what love is is actually quite distorted. And Jesus challenges our ideas about love. See, because our concept of love is distorted, we miss all the signs when God is telling us yes. So this evening, what I want to do in this essay is I want to articulate for you four ways quickly that Christ challenges our modern ideas of love. So we'll start right at the beginning. First, when we are honest with ourselves, we believe that only the lovely are loved. Now, 
Do you understand what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to say here? In the pit of our soul, we believe that people who are loved already had it coming, right? Now, this is a curious thing because we love underdog stories, right? We, we love movies or stories of people who are outcasts but emerge against all odds to become truly great people. So, for instance, my girls love the new uh, live-action uh, Disney Cinderella story, right, with Ella James. It tells the classic story of Cinderella who is treated with cruelty by her uh, evil stepmother and stepsisters. But what happens? She ends up marrying the prince. We love that story, right? The rejected person becomes amazing. But here's the deal. She was always amazing, right? She just needed to be discovered. But there was always something special in her. She was always lovely. And so what happens is even those kinds of stories reinforce our belief that the lovely are the loved. It reinforces our belief that in order to be loved, you have to be impressive, right? You can't be a loser. You can't be a failure. And so what do we do? Because we believe that narrative, we cover stuff up. We manage our identities on uh, social media. We float our resumes out there like self-promotion. And we absolutely, under no circumstances, get honest about our massive failures. But here's the thing. Jesus, and in fact, Good Friday, challenges our vision of love. We believe that only the lovely are loved. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, it is the loved who become lovely. And so the order is reversed. Now, if you're familiar with the, the, the stories in the New Testament, you'll know that there's this very peculiar trajectory between Jesus and his followers. So Jesus chooses the most unlikely disciples. The disciples represent a class of people who are, well, to state it plainly, quite unlovely. They were uneducated, poor, and in some cases, they were considered traitors to their own people. But Jesus pursues them, not because they're good enough or impressive. He simply places his affection upon them. But then the story continues. They follow Jesus, and arguably, they get worse. They become arrogant and quite hypocritical. And at the moment when Jesus needed a friend the most, while he's hanging on the cross that Good Friday 2,000 years ago, his so-called friends desert him. And so three days later, when he's resurrected, you expect Jesus to find a new set of friends, right? But that's not what happens. Jesus pursues them even more. He loves them. And if you know anything about early church history, you know that every single one of those disciples who deserted him, they end up dying as martyrs with one exception. That is to say, the disciples were completely transformed by Jesus' love from cowards to brave people. Now, Jesus did not love the disciples because they were lovely. Rather, he loved them first, and that love transformed them and made them lovely. See, Jesus came to fix what is broken. See, broken things don't fix themselves. 
God does the work. And that's how it works for us. And that is actually the message of Good Friday. It's not that we clean ourselves up so that God loves us. Rather, the cross is a seal of God's love through Christ, which shows that we are totally and utterly loved. And being loved first, we then become lovely. And this is an absolute affront to the quid pro quo version of love that shapes our current ideas about love. But let's move on. There's a second way that Jesus challenges our notions of love. When we think of definitions of real love, we often think about emotions, desires, and actions all lining up, of course, and then being placed on another person. The problem, of course, is that there's often a disconnect between our emotions and our actions. So it's often the case that a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend will leave their lover with this explanation, I fell out of love. This is um, a very uh, capricious definition of love. It's the one that is currently operating in our society, for sure. It is the most widely practiced. And, and when relation, so when relationships get difficult, people bail on each other, and then the question, the haunting question returns. Am I loved? So let me articulate the main difficulty with this, and it's this. You can never be perfectly sure that someone truly loves you until you disappoint them or fail them. And then you see how they respond. Mark Twain, you know, he's always so interesting. He once wrote the following. He says, no man or woman knows what true love is until they've been married for 25 years. Why? Because in 25 years, you have plenty of time to radically disappoint another person and see if they stick with you. That interesting line is actually related to the model of love that we see in Christ, which is this, that real love is the continued embrace in the face of disappointment and failure. And this is why the Christian version of love is so unique. And let me see if I can't quickly make the case for you. Again, I don't know if you believe in God or not, but Christianity proposes that there's just one God and that he is omniscient. God knows all things. God sees all things. God sees your deepest failure. He knows your deepest shame. He knows the lies that you tell yourself to make yourself look better. He knows the things that you do with your body in order to make yourself more lovable. He knows your betrayal of others when it helped you to advance your career, even at the expense of others. He knows your sharp anger that you use against people when they're getting too close to seeing the real you. He knows what you do when no one else sees. He knows that you have radically disappointed him, and he knows that you will radically disappoint him in the future. And here's the thing. He knows, he pursues, and he loves. He doesn't give up, see? Christ knew who he was dying for. And so then when you see these images of Jesus hanging on the cross, I don't want you to think that he was being naive. He knows 
See, Jesus did not die for you because you were good enough. He died for you because you were not good enough. And so the cross is evidence of God's continued embrace in the face of radical disappointment and radical failure. We ask, am I loved? And the cross offers a bigger yes to that question. Continued embrace in the face of disappointment. Now, here's a third challenge that Jesus offers to our ideas and concepts of love. So our society, our culture, advances the idea that love is blind, right? That love ignores past hurts. Now, to be sure, infatuation is indeed blind. I mean, how many relationships have you seen that are clearly dysfunctional and even alarming, but a couple perhaps can't even see it between them? Well, that's not the kind of love that Christ has on offer. That kind of love is not big enough to satisfy our need to be loved. How come? Because love is not blind. Love sees and love deals. If you have ever said to someone, listen, if you love me, you will leave me alone about this, then you're not actually asking that person to love you. In the words of the great thinker G.K. Chesterton, he says, love is not blind. That's the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. It is both brutally honest and fiercely committed to restoring what is broken. C.S. Lewis, uh, you may have heard of him, English writer and thinker. He writes a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. One of the books in that series is called Prince Caspian. In the book, we're introduced to this small dwarf called Trumpkin. Now, Trumpkin fights on the side of the good guys, right? He is Narnian, but he has actually never seen the great lion Aslan. And so he's actually famous for saying, who believes in Aslan nowadays? See, Aslan is the supposed ruler of Narnia. So Trumpkin, in this book, his... His uh, character is, um, is understood as being, uh, he's understood by his doubt. He, he's a skeptic, right? So the story continues, and towards the very end of the book, the two meet. And so Aslan says, where is this little dwarf who does not believe in lions? And Trumpkin, of course, comes forward. He's wearing his battle armor, and his knees are shaking. He is convinced that he is about to die and be eaten by the greatest beast in the world. And immediately, Aslan pounces on Trumpkin like a, like a cat on its prey, and then the lion picks up Trumpkin up in his mouth like a, like a mother cat carrying its kitten, and Aslan flings him up in the air, catches him with his massive paws, sets him up straight, dusts him off, and he says, now, shall we be friends? And uh, I love that story. See, because Aslan first exposes Trumpkin and then he restores him. See, real love does not brush past failures under the rug. It deals with them in the context of deeper and more intimate restoration. See, we're all asking the question, am I loved? And God says, yes. But what he does is he makes us gaze upon a cross where Jesus, the Son of God, is hanging. See, when God says yes, it is true and it is real. 
And the cross affirms that God's love is true precisely because it is costly, right? It shows that the relationship of love deals honestly. This is not cheap love. It's real. True love sees. God knew the costs, and he indeed paid the ultimate cost. And so we're forced to look upon that cross, and the blood and nails demonstrate the seriousness of God's commitment. It reminds us of the terms of true love. See, until we come to grips with our own arrogance and even the pain that we have caused God and others, it will feel impossible to receive love, to be loved. It will feel like hippie love, right? I mean, hippie love may be cute and sentimental, but it's not big enough to give rest in our souls when we ask the question, am I loved, right? Because it just feels superficial. Good Friday love is not blind love. It is bound love. The cross on which Jesus hung communicates that the love that God offers is not blind. It sees and it deals Good Friday is an incredibly important reminder that the love that we are seeking is not just pie in the sky, it's not just a cute meme, right? It's not a bumper sticker. It is concrete. It is historic. It is real. And precisely because it is real, it calls us to deal. This, of course, is in stark contrast to modern notions of love that are imagined like, I don't know, like radio waves that are going out with nothing in return. See, modern ideas of love are sterile and cheap. It costs nothing. Now, of course, you can believe that version of love, and many people do, but you will actually get no rest in your soul when you ask the question, am I loved? See, for that, you need to be confronted by the costliness of the cross of Christ that proves that love is not blind. Love sees and love deals. That's what Good Friday is communicating. All right, let me finish. Allow me to offer one more way that Christ challenges our sort of modern, our society's concept and definition of love. We all ask, am I loved? And Christianity suggests that the only yes that is big enough to satisfy us through Jesus Christ is um, is Jesus, is, is what we see on the cross. And yet, of course, we struggle to believe that because our ideas of love are quite misguided and we're, we're missing all the signs, right? Well, the last challenge to believing that we are loved is this. We believe that the goal of love is feeling loved, right? But the message of Christianity disagrees According to Jesus, the goal of love is becoming one who loves others. Now listen very carefully. Asking the question, am I loved, is extremely important. In fact, that's how come I've devoted this essay to answering that question. But what I'm trying to suggest is that answering that question properly requires that we don't finish with the question wrapped around ourselves. That question leads us to this question. Is he loved or is she loved? Are they loved? How can I take the yes that I have to the other? 
no one thinks about love with that framework, right? Right, when a movie star says, I want love, what are they saying? They're saying that I want to be loved, I want to feel loved. Our culture has unconsciously adopted a model of love that runs on narcissism. And I say that reverently. See, we see ourselves as the frame of reference for understanding true love. But have you ever met a narcissist that actually feels loved? I mean, have you ever met a narcissist that rests in the security of someone else's love? No. Why? Because enough is never enough, and we become codependent. But what if our concepts of love agreed with the teachings of Christ, and it, and it focused on becoming a, becoming a person who loves others? Now, the way that you can tell if God's perfect love has sunk into your heart is if you find yourself on a mission to love others. And this aspect of love is not insignificant. It literally changed the ancient world. And although our present vision of love in our modern society has changed, we all are still beneficiaries of this ethic of love in ancient times. And let me explain. Sociologist and historian Rodney Stark, he makes the case that the primary reason for the spread of Christianity in the first, second, and third, and fourth uh, centuries is because the followers of Christ loved people who nobody else would love. So, for instance, in 165 AD, a massive plague hits Rome, and a fourth of the population is wiped out. Now, less than 100 years later, another pandemic hits. And how do you think people responded to the sick and dying? At first detection of the plague, people pushed the sick away. People fled from their homes. They fled from their loved ones who were sick, even throwing them onto the streets. But not everyone did this. In fact, the the ancient historian Dionysius of Alexandria, he noted that Christians took, uh, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, he says, and in many cases, even drawing upon themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Not something? Why? Why on, the wor- why on earth would they do this? It's because they knew that they themselves were loved with perfect certainty. And with that love, that certainty coursing through their veins, it redirected them from wanting to feel loved to becoming one who loves others. In the ancient world, if you got leprosy, you had to be isolated and left alone to die. This changed one day when a man, when a man named uh, Basil of Caesarea had a different idea. He created a place to care for lepers. He said, he said, hey, let's create a place where they can all live, receive tra- treatment. They don't have to pay. We will serve them, and we will actually provide funds for them. Did you know that was the beginning of hospitals? The philosopher Mark Nelson suggests that the, that the ethic of love that Jesus Christ employs had a massive impact on medicine and institutions of compassion. He writes, wherever you have institutions of self-giving or schools, hospitals, 
orphanages, or any service for people where they could never pay, it has its roots in the movement of Jesus Christ. Now, why would Christians in the first, second, third centuries live like this? It is because they were captivated by the concept that their God loves the unlovely. And they allowed it to turn them into people who love. In fact, it was evidence that they had a clear yes to their own question, am I loved? Let me quickly conclude. See, what I've tried to accomplish this evening, Good Friday, is this, whether or not we have ever clearly articulated it, we live with a deeply human question below the surface of our soul, and it is, am I loved? Whether you're a Christian or not, you ha- how you answer that question will compel you to live a certain kind of life. And depending on where you find that question, it will produce a life that is secure or insecure. See, we actually can all rationalize that question by answering yes, But how firm is your yes, right? What is the source of your yes? Is it indestructible? How secure and unchanging is your yes? Does your yes produce hiding and maybe pathological behaviors? Or does it produce rest? These deep existential questions are not unrelated to the reason why Christians are celebrating Good Friday. Good Friday is not just a disconnected ritualistic holiday to make us feel guilty. Again, I'm not sure if you believe in Christianity, but what I am suggesting is that you should at least give it a serious hearing. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews, he says this about Jesus. He says, For the joy that was set before him He endured the cross, spurning its shame. What do you suppose is that joy that was set before him as he hung on the cross 2,000 years ago? May I suggest that it was you, that you are his joy for which he hangs on the cross to give you a secure love? And if that is true, if that is true, wouldn't you want to at least know about it? I want to continue this conversation with you. I hope this is just a conversation starter. If your interest is piqued and want to have more dialogue, send me an email, ronnie at trinitypr.org, and let's just start on a journey to see where we can find answers to our deep questions. Am I loved? Thank you, and have a great night. God bless you. 